What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith from ESPN. This is former world champion boxer Showtime Sean Porter. Hey, this is Kobe Gibson. I'm Josh Creed. Hi, this is Joe Tate, voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And you're listening to Sports Power Talk. You listen to Sports Power Talk. And keep listening, or it'll be wham with the right hand. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the University of Akron, WZIP Sports presents the best sports talk show this side of Lake Erie. No question, with all due respect. This is Sports Power Talk. With the latest in sports news. Your Akron Zips are the 2022 MAC champions. The Zips have defeated the Kent State Electric Chickens. In-depth analysis. Astrology for women is equal to what Joe Rogan is for men. <laughs> have you ever tried DMT? <laughs> and of course, the hottest takes. He's just bad. Let me tear your labrum and you can go on the... You know what? (laughs) It's only a game. Why you have to be mad? Just the same old Browns! You know, bro. Hold on, bitch. I think that was textbook top cheese. Cleveland! This is for you! From the best that Ohio sports has to offer... To the best of the Akron Zips. Now, it's time for SPT. We are live from the University of Akron, ladies and gentlemen from Northeast Ohio and beyond. This is the best sports talk show there is, was, and ever will be. This is Sports Power Talk. My name is Jake Murn, and I'm honored to be the host of SPT. I'm joined by two of my analysts. First, he is known as our bracketologist here at WZIP Sports. He's also a recent college grad. He is Jeff Longville. You know, we had a little short hiatus there, but we're back today. We are back, Jeff. And second, the man who's got a bucket list in life. He's trained in Muay Thai. He's been a stand-up comedian. Of course, he's an analyst up here for WZIP Sports. And who knows what else is on his radar. It's the one and only Alex Henry. Good morning, everybody. As always, we have a very fun and exciting show for you all today. We'll end the show with our last segment starting at 1230 by discussing the latest within the NFL. Training camp is underway, and we're going to have some fun with some QB rankings, including some famous QBs in Browns history. Before that, we have a lot of baseball headlines to break down. Of course, the trade deadline is rapidly approaching, so we'll cover everything you need to know about that along with our Cleveland Guardians and some award predictions as well as we are underway in the second half of the season. But first, we are going to talk about combat sports. Yes, combat sports as the world-leading MMA promotion, the UFC, had UFC 277 last night. But before we get into the card, Alex... I know you met some pretty great people yesterday. Yesterday was a very good day for Alex Henry. I got to meet my favorite UFC fighter of all time. Even if you're not a UFC fan, you know I'm Chuck Liddell in Middlesburg celebrating the one-year anniversary of the UFC Middlesburg Jam. And Mark Coleman, another UFC legend. Very, very cool facing off with those guys, getting some cool pictures, some autographs on my shirt. Very cool. Yeah, absolute legends. I saw that post on your Instagram, and I was very, very jealous. I was at work. I was jealous of you meeting these legends in the UFC. I know you were, you were the one who asked for the face off. You were the first one. Yeah, for I, both men. I asked for this face off, and, and they they faced off. It wasn't it wasn't a joke. They got right up in my grill. It was cool. Yeah, who won the fight? They, you know, I think I could probably take them both. Yeah, yeah, I are believe you, it. Are you allowed yeah. to say who's cooler? Or is that off the table? Chuck Liddell is my favorite okay. of all time, so I, I'd pick Chuck. 
Even though Mark Coleman commented on your posts. Mark Coleman. In your DMs. He, yep, he did comment on my post. Go check out the post, Alex underscore Henry 71. Mark Coleman's a cool guy. Nice plug there, Alex. All right, are you ready to get into some UFC 277 talk, Alex? Of course. All right, let's talk about some notable fights from the prelims. I know you wanted to talk about this one between Dante Mays and Hamdi. Uh, wow, already messed it up, Alex. You said you got on the first one. Hamdi Abdelahab. There you go. There we go. All right, Alex, go ahead. Take it away. Yeah. First ever Egyptian UFC fighter went out there, represented his country, and they really, the crowd was really not, like, on Hamdi's side whatsoever, which I didn't really, wasn't crazy about because I thought it was a really cool story. I think it was just the other guy was uh, an American. Yeah, so they were doing for the sure. USA chance. Yeah, for sure. Um, but Don Mace, I thought he was going to win. He's very good, heavyweight, and he he was kind of getting beat pretty bad, but it was a good striking match. Uh, came down to the third with a decision split win. I don't think it should have been a split, but uh, the third round was kind of boring, just uh, wrestling, ground control. But, yeah, Hamdi, he's good, he's legit, and I'm excited to see where he goes from here. Yeah, not only is he the, he the first UFC Egyptian fighter, but Abdelahab took the fight on 12 days' notice. It was only his sixth fight in his career, and he took the fight to Mays and won. I was very impressed. Even that takedown in the third round, sure, you could say he was just kind of stalling for the victory. I have no idea how this fight was a split decision victory. No. I thought it was pretty convincing that Hamdi did enough to beat Mays. But regardless, he wins his UFC debut in what I thought was pretty impressive fashion, and I'm excited to see where the first UFC Egyptian fighter goes in the UFC. Another notable fight from the prelims, Drew Dober taking on Rafael Alves. Dober won a performance of the night bonus as he KO'd Alves in the third round with a body shot. I'm sure you love that body shot, Alex. Yeah, I uh, wasn't crazy. I'm not a crazy Drew Dober fan. Why is I, uh, that? I got to interview Terrence McKenney and yeah. he, uh, he beat Terrence McKenney in what I think was a pretty lucky win. However, he definitely proved himself last night. He is tough. He he. I mean, it was a very entertaining fight. And big credit to both guys in that fight, too. Yeah, it was a great fight. And Rafael Alves, I believe it was... An, was it an eye poke or was it a groin strike? I think it was an eye poke in the second round. He got his five minutes of time. Yeah. I think he only used a minute or so of it. And then he came out firing against Drew Dober. And yeah. Drew Dober has... An amazing, an amazing chin. Yeah, well. he's a very good Muay Thai fighter. Um, yeah. Very good. Very good striker. Yep. He's also on the up. That's all I got from the prelims. Do you have anything else to mention? No. Yeah. it was. I thought I was pretty impressed by the prelims, you know, especially after last week. Last week's prelims were really rough. So this week, moving on from London, it was a great slate of prelims. Even with names that didn't stick out on paper, right. the fight's... The fights showed up, and they, they proved what they had. Let's talk about all five main card fights. We had our predictions show. We're going to talk about the results after we run through and break down all the results. And, Jeff, I know you're not a big UFC fan. You're not going to contribute much to this conversation, but I am going to force you to make some pretty difficult pronunciations here. That you are. So I'm going to kick it to you. What was the first fight? So that's the one on the bottom? That would be right. Okay. So that was... Magomed Ankalev? Mm. Oh, okay. (laughs) What's his name? You're very wrong. Magomed Ankalaev. Okay, yeah. And And who did he fight? So you you were psyching me out about this before we started, so now I'm nervous. But I'm going to go with my gut. Is it just Anthony Smith? 
That okay, is. Cool. Correct. That cool. is. You are correct. Magomed Ankalaev taking on the legend Anthony Lionheart Smith. Ankalaev got back to his knockout ways by finishing the Lionheart three minutes into the second round. Smith said he broke his leg during his last kick in the first round. Unfortunately, for three weeks in a row on a main card, we see another fight. Not end with an injury this time, but certainly Anthony Smith, I think, had more to him if it wasn't for the injury. Alex, what did you make of the first fight? Yeah, I 100% agree, and this was a fight I was really looking forward to be entertaining, and I really didn't get what I wanted out of it, and I honestly expected way more out of Magomed, considering he is on the up to have conversations about where he is in his weight class, and honestly, I don't really think he proved much with this win over Anthony Smith, despite Anthony Smith being the fifth-ranked guy it the the leg injury was big and he really didn't prove a lot with that victory in my opinion yeah the leg injury allowed uncle i have to pilot on by outstriking smith 64 to 21 in the fight and landing 22 ground strikes that would lead to the referee stopping the fights you mentioned the uncle I have performance and i kind of agree with you you know the first minute of the first round I don't think there were almost any strikes thrown uncle I have is more so turning into a patient fighter when he has that KO power, he's knocked out a ton of people in the past. I mentioned it in our preview show, his last three wins all came by decision. Mm. I expected him to come out and get a KO win over Anthony Smith. I think the only reason he did, though, was because of the injury to Anthony Smith. If it wasn't for that injury, I mean, Anthony Smith could have even won rounds two and three. Yeah. Round one was wide open because, honestly, neither fighter did all that much. Correct. What's next for Ankalaev, though, in your opinion? In that division, we have Yuri Prohaska as the champion, potentially going up against Glover Teixeira in the rematch. Yeah, Bohovic, Rakic out there in the rankings as well. Who would you pair Ankalaev with next? I mean, I don't know. Like I said, that, that fight really doesn't prove a lot to me. And considering he beat Anthony Smith, I almost feel like he shouldn't fight anybody under him. But I, I don't think he's ready for a title shot. Even though if he would have had more of a dominant performance, I think he would have been in conversation. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of hard right now where I'd put him. I, 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 can't, yeah. I can't even say. I see one of two matchups. Obviously, in the preview show, I mentioned, you know, Ankalaya, if he goes out there, has an impressive performance. I think he goes against Jan Blachowicz, and the winner of that fight is pretty much a first or number one contender, gets a title bout. Because I think the UFC is going to go in the direction of Yuri Prohaska and Glover Teixeira because mm-hmm. that was, I think, fight of the year so far. Mm-hmm. They rebook that, and then you have Blahovich kind of there waiting. I think right now you could make that Ankalaya blahovich fight. It makes somewhat sense. Ankalaya, he's been impressive lately, but just not as impressive as he was early on in his UFC career. And then Alexander Rakic, I know he got hurt against Blahovich, so we'll see when he comes back. I think that Blahovich or Rakic fight makes sense for Ankalaev. We'll see what they do at the light heavyweight division. Let's get into the second fight of the night and the hardest name to pronounce. I am excited to hear this one, Jeff. Go ahead and take it away. It looks easy, but from what I understand, it's not. It is incredibly hard. Okay. Yes. Well, I'm not even going to try to guess, so I'm just going to say Alexandre Pantoya. Mm. That is what, very what's, wrong, what's my friend. What's his name? Alexandre Pantoja. Oh, yeah. It's more of like a S-H-A-N, like right. Alexandre okay. Pantoja. And who did you fight? Alex Perez. Another easy, <laughs> easy American name there for you. That's right. Uh, and Alex, I got one up on you in this fight. 
I picked Pantoja, you picked Perez, and Pantoja submitted Perez in 91 seconds. He only had to land eight significant strikes. He's able to land a takedown, take Perez's back, and crank his neck with enough power to result in the submission win. What do you have for me on Pantoja and Perez? Yeah, this is another fight that doesn't impress me. Um, I thought that Pantoja's performance was really good. But honestly, it is it is what most people expected. I'm not sure if it was in as dominant a fashion as it was. I definitely thought this fight was going to go longer. I actually said that I thought it would be fight of the night because both guys are such good strikers. And yeah, Pantoja came out one quick. But I mean, a win over Perez after he's been out of the cage for two years, I don't know what that really does for him um, within... Mm-hmm. The flyweight division. So you weren't impressed by the win? No, they, I mean, it was an impressive victory, impressive match. But I, it's just, I don't. I thought the booking was good, but I don't think that Perez looked good. I don't think he was ready for the fight, and I started to change my mind as every day went by after the podcast. So it it it, it was an impressive victory for sure, and I can't say it wasn't. But I don't know what it does for him. Hmm. Um. I, I don't. I wouldn't put him against like a Kai Car France who just lost, for example. Well, that's interesting. We'll definitely get into that fight. Pantoja was awarded a performance of the night bonus last night as well. And yeah, let's look at that division, the flyweight division. You have Pantoja sitting at number four right now. He beat Alex Perez, who was number six. If you look at the top three, of course, the champion is Davison Figueiredo. Number one is now the uh, vague or the. Interim champ Brandon Moreno. Then you have Kaikar France, Askar Askarov. Would you see Pantoja going up against any of those guys? Uh, if if any, I think he deserves Askar. Not that he deserves it, but that that is who he would get. Yeah. I know Askar is coming off a loss to Kaikar France. And honestly, I was very impressed by the win. I kind of have a different opinion opinion from you on that. I think Pantoja could make the case to fight for the title next, but obviously it seems like Moreno Figueredo 4 is coming, and mm-hmm. we'll talk about that in a moment as well. But I think putting him up against Kaikar France makes a lot of sense right now. Kaikar France coming off the loss, I think it's a great fight stylistically. I think it's going to be a great fight for fans. It's They're going to put on a show, and I would be excited for it. Pantoja would deserve that shot, and whoever would win that fight... I think they make the case to be the number one contender after Moreno Figueroa 4. I think that's what makes sense at flyweight. We'll see what happens there. Let's go to the heavyweights. I know you have some strong opinions about the what fight, Jeff? All right, I'm not getting a single one of these wrong going forward. I'm confident in that. I think I got this. Okay. So the first one, Derek Lewis. Yeah, easy. Pretty easy. And then Sergey Pavlovich. Awesome. Very impressed, Jeff. Very impressed. Alex, go ahead and take it away. I know you have strong thoughts. Yeah, and I'll keep it short. Uh, Derek Lewis wasn't going to win. He didn't look good opening in the fight. Um, Sergey was bringing pressure on him. Derek Lewis was going to get knocked out. Do I think the call was bad? No, I don't. Everybody thinks the call was bad. Was Derek Lewis knocked out? I don't think so. He got right up. However, when a fighter falls forward... With their head down after getting landed multiple strikes, if I'm a referee, I call it right there. 
What did Derek Lewis do? He's been in the UFC for so long. Derek Lewis, if you're not knocked out, don't fall on your face. And was he knocked out? Was he not? I don't think he was. Do I think it was a bad call by the referee? Absolutely not. And I'm not upset with it, especially considering Sergey looked like he was going to beat him anyway. Well, that's, that's an interesting take. I thought you were going to go along the lines of saying, yeah, it was an early stoppage. And honestly, I don't understand why people are throwing such a fit about this. I agree with most UFC fans saying, hey, it was an early stoppage. But personally, like you said, he was getting outstruck. I know some of those strikes from Pavlovich weren't landing, but the power was there. Derek Lewis did not look good. He has not looked good in his recent fights. He is a very easy fighter to figure out as well. We mentioned how he's scared to throw strikes. He has the power, but he doesn't put out enough output. He's the same Derek Lewis he's been for 10 years. He's going to be the same Derek Lewis for the next 10 years. And that's what we saw last night. And the fight only lasted 55 seconds. Pavlovich was throwing a lot of strikes to try and finish him. Of course, some were landing, some weren't. But Lewis fell to the ground. And I somewhat agree with you. You know, He fell to the ground head first. If you're the referee, I understand why he stopped that fight. I am. Especially with them both being heavyweights. Yeah. With the heavyweights, there's so much on the line, and all it takes is that one punch. I don't blame the referee for getting in there and stopping that fight. I know everybody was upset. The Dallas crowd was loud for their hometown guy. But Lewis has now lost by finish in three out of his last four fights. And he has lost his last three fights in his home state of Texas. Talking about Pavlovich, though, what do you think is next for the heavyweight contender? Man, my answers are just not good today. I I think that Sergey deserves to go top 10, and I think Derek Lewis needs to leave the top 10. And considering Derek Lewis was 5 and Sergey beat him how he did, maybe you put him against the top 5 fighter. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I'm okay with... Sergey fighting anyone in the top 10 just because I don't necessarily think that that win over Derek Lewis is something to take home about. And I think that the UFC would agree with that. Especially if the UFC saw it in the eyes of, hey, it was an early stoppage, it might not value it as high as maybe Pavlovich does. He beat Lewis, who was ranked 5th in the heavyweight division. I expect Pavlovich to be ranked 6th after this win because I don't think he jumps Tom Aspinall. No, I think I Aspinall either. goes up to 5 Pavlovich takes that number six spot. I like that. And then I think it makes sense for him to fight down in the rankings in his next fight. Sure. And Alexander Volkov, Jarzina Rosenstrike, and Chris Dawkins are right there for the taking. So I'd take any of those. Chris Dawkins fight would be nice to watch, I think. Yeah, they're both comparable on the feats. Chris Dawkins was actually the latest victim of Derek Lewis, Mm -hmm. him coming back. I could see that uh, Sergey-Chris fight uh, making sense for both guys in the heavyweight division. Let's talk about the co-main event, though. Brandon Moreno taking on Kai Car France. Moreno did become the interim flyweight champion with a third-round body kick KO. I didn't get over to do my France. thing, man. Oh man, that's and that was that's what I was gonna say anyway. Okay, well, but I'll, I'll give you the two. I believe you. <laughs> I'll give you the two. Thank you. There you go. Thank man. you. I did forget, but those are easy ones. Yeah. Um, you might slip up on the main event, but they are two prominent fighters, so I do have faith in you. Well, now I'm good. nervous. <laughs> I mean, it's more so like. The rolling of some of the letters and the names. But. I can't roll my R's. Please tell me I don't have to do that. It's not R's. It's okay. N's, I guess. But okay. Alex, go ahead I'll and take it, it away. What would you take from the co-main event? This is, this is the Brandon Moreno that I love. 
and I did not know if this was Brandon Moreno, if I would ever see this Brandon Moreno again. It was the dog who wins. It wasn't the dog who doesn't give up and loses. It was a dog that goes out and fights. And Brandon Moreno, he had an excellent game plan. He had a Conor McGregor-esque stance, keeping his distance. And then instead of coming in to strike with Kai Kara France, he, he stayed with his jab the entire fight, stayed with his leg kicks, and waited for his openings every time until he kind of got a little pressure in the third round. And then he would come in. And it was it was a beautiful performance. The wrestling was good. Kai Kaur France looked really good too. I thought maybe a little slow in the first round, but after that, I thought he looked good. And it, it was a very dominant win for Brandon Moreno. And I love the win, and I'm very happy about it. That's definitely an interesting take. And I have written in my notes verbatim: Was this the Brandon Moreno that won the title against Davison Figueroa? Because I think that's the best Brandon Moreno we've seen to date. And with what you just said, I'm assuming your answer to that would be yes. Yeah, I mean, I think Kai Kara hit him multiple times with his hardest punch. And it really didn't drop Moreno like I thought it would. He was eating those punches and still striking at a high-level boxing capability, which we have saw. And he, he was just so composed the entire time. And, yeah, I would 100% agree. Yeah, the fight won the fight of the night bonus. Brandon Moreno... I agree with you. He looked great in the first two rounds, but was cut by an elbow of Kai Car France when he was surging in that third round. Then, of course, it was the body kick from Moreno that shut down Car France. Two body shots to end fights in the night last night. Yeah. And the scorecards in the fight were actually all over the place when they were announced afterwards. And Kai actually outstruck Moreno 66 to 59 in the fight, which was really interesting. Personally, I would have loved to see it go even longer. I thought this fight was going to go to decision. The one outcome I could not have seen happening was Moreno by KO, which is what happened. But, I mean, that body kick was well-timed, perfect placement. And like I said, it just shut down the contender in Kai Car France. And it's easy to answer my next question, what's next for Moreno? Davison Figueroa. Do you like that fight? No, not. I, I, I don't care to necessarily watch it again. But I think, I think it. I believe it or not, I think it does actually make sense. And I think there's a reason they brought Davidson in the ring last night, and that they faced off. And I think it it does make sense. However, I don't want to see it again. I don't care to see these guys fight again. I think their first three fights were great. I would be excited for the fourth one when it gets up so, to it, and I would too. But right now, just the idea of them facing one another again doesn't intrigue me all that much and something i want to talk about is what you thought of davison figueredo going into the cage after the fight i am more so of a recent ufc fan of just two three years and i thought it was pretty weird to see the next opponent for a fighter in the cage after he won i don't think i've ever seen that before what did you make of that whole situation Uh, i thought it was sweet i i got really excited when i saw them opening the cage for him and um, and he walked in and kind of got in his face. And I, I think both fighters have a lot of respect for each other. And I, I think that Davison wants the fight again because I don't know if he thinks he genuinely won that fight or not last time. I was more annoyed because there's obviously rumors out there that Davison might not even fight, not even fight at flyweight again, which confuses me why he would even go in the cage and try and set up that rematch. And for me, 
in that moment, I want to hear from Brandon Moreno. That was my biggest thing. I want to hear what Brandon Moreno has to say. And that whole time when Davison's trying to get into the cage, it took like 45 seconds to a minute. It's just very awkward. Brandon Moreno doesn't really know what he's saying. He's fumbling on his words because he's worried about Davison actually coming into the cage with him. It just feels like they took the spotlight off of Moreno winning the interim belt and put it on the possibility that isn't even guaranteed a fourth fight between Moreno and Figueredo. Yeah, that's and what that, I had a problem with. Yeah, that's fair. I, 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 I mean, obviously, I love Brandon Moreno, but I, I would have liked to hear what he had to say as well. And he was definitely stumbling. And also, I mean, he was messed up. It, he, his face was very messed up. If you've seen any pictures of last night, yeah, that was that elbow. Uh, yeah, he, he's definitely beat. But I, I wasn't crazy about the whole interim belt uh, to begin with, so I didn't really feel like this was like a big championship win for Brandon Moreno. Probably like a lot of UFC fans do. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fine take. We mentioned the the interim flyweight champion even being introduced into the division. I'm a fan of it. I know you aren't, but we'll see what happens at flyweights. I think they're going to go in the direction of that fourth fight. Will it be entertaining when we come to it? Yes. Is it entertaining right now to us, at least right now? I don't think so. The main events of the evening, women's bantamweight. Jeff, go on with your pronunciations. Juliana Pina? No? That is very wrong. What is it? Juliana Pena. Pena, okay. So you got to roll that in, man. Um, And then Amanda Nunes. There you go. Hey, you finished strong, man. That's right. There you go. Juliana Pena, Amanda Nunes... And what sticks out to me is that stats really don't matter because Pena actually outstruck Nunez, even though Nunez had more significant strikes. And just talking about Amanda Nunez, I'll run through some amazing stats for the GOATs of women's MMA. She had six takedowns and three knockdowns in this fight. She passed Jessica Andrade for the most wins in women's UFC history at 15. She's the first UFC fighter to become double champ twice in their career. And she's now only behind John Jones, George St. Pierre, Demetrius Johnson, and Anderson Silva for the most title fight wins in UFC history. For me, the biggest headline in this fight is more so Juliana Pena's toughness than Amanda Nunez's dominance. But Alex, I'll head to you first. Yeah, Jake. So I, um, I'm very happy Amanda won. I predicted her to win. She won in very dominant fashion. I don't have as much praise for Juliana Pena. I think it was very impressive that she was able to stick in there, but her game plan was awful the entire fight. Uh, She looked very sloppy every time she got into striking exchanges, and most of the time where she had plenty of opportunities to capitalize as, I think, a better jiu-jitsu fighter on the ground... Uh, she didn't, and I'm not even talking about the arm bars. I'm just talking about a lot of the time she laid there and let Nunez punch her a million times until she even went for something. So why I do give her a lot of credit for being so tough to stick in there with the GOAT, I mean, for as much talk as she had, as much of a dominant performance she had in the first fight, I, I was not really impressed with Pena. And as much as Amanda Nunez was great last night, I think Juliana Pena was bad. So it... I really would have liked to see Juliana Pena give me a little more volume and a way better strategy. I, I don't know what her coaches were telling her when Amanda Nunes went southpaw. They continued to tell her to keep wrestling, and it wasn't working. And it, and even when she did go into the striking exchanges, they were awful. So I would have liked to see a trilogy fight 
if Juliana Pena did good and lost in decision, but she didn't. So I get her out. Man, I. You said we might argue, and I didn't think we would, but I think it's coming to that point here because I don't want to hear any disrespect towards Juliana Pena here. And if you look at their first fight, who was supposed to win their first fight, Alex? Amanda Nunes. Of course she was. And if you look at that first fight, I don't. Sure, there's two headlines, and I take one with more weight than the other in that first fight. You have one fight, one headline saying, hey, Juliana Pena said what she was going to do. She went out there, took the fight to the GOAT like nobody has, and beat her and got the title. And that's a fine headline to go with. But I think the other headline that's more important is that Jul- or, uh, Amanda Nunes was not the lioness that night. She had COVID. She was struggling with injuries. She had moved camps. It was not the same GOAT that we have been witnessing her entire career in that first meeting between these women. I think that's what's more important because going into the second fight, we both picked Amanda Nunes because we thought the first fight, with lack of a better term, was a fluke in a way for Juliana Pena. So to see, to go out there and see what Amanda Nunes did to Juliana Pena, if anything, to me, that was more so expected than anything. But to see Juliana Pena go through that and go to a five-round decision and sure, she got knocked down three times, but she always stood right back up when the referee told her to. And she might be the toughest fighter in the UFC, regardless of gender. And while she's going to get praise for her toughness here, she's going to go home, not victorious, not the champ. And honestly, I hope she just keeps her head high because she proved a lot last night to a lot of people. You might be able to say the blueprint is out there to beat Nunez. And sure, you can say it that. Is, and Pena carved it. Yeah, and you can say that Pena, her game plan wasn't smart last night. I think Pena should have gotten to the clinch more in Southpaw. I think she should have wrestled more offensively and not defensively. She was accepting some of those defensive takedown positions and was going for those arm bars and submissions rather than trying to stand back up. And sure, those strikes came in waves, but they were kind of clumsy, and she kept on getting rocked, and that's what led to a lot of those knockdowns. Sure, but... If that's the blueprint to beat Amanda Nunes, you got to go out there and do it. She wanted to keep her title. She kept on throwing those strikes because that's what worked for her in that first fight. Yeah, I don't know. I, I You go back and watch after the first round. Amanda Nunes was not tired at all. Juliana Pena was breathing super heavy. I don't think her cardio was there. Juliana uh, Pena's? Yeah, if you I go, mean, ba- she was you go back and round. watch. And I think that's why she was so sloppy. I just... If you want to say that in the first fight that the Lioness wasn't there, I want to say that the Venezuelan Vixen was not there last night. And I don't necessarily... I'm saying this in favor of Juliana Pena. I want to give her credit. It just wasn't the same Juliana Pena I see. And I don't want to give credit to somebody who stayed in the fight and just didn't get knocked out compared to somebody who I thought fought really, really hard and just lost. Because I don't think she fought very hard. I think she fought to stay in the fight. She didn't fight to keep her belt. She fight, fought to make it to decision. That's my take. I completely disagree, man. I think she was fighting Amanda Nunes, trying trying to knock her out, trying to do anything, whether it was the submissions or the striking to get out of there and retain her belt. But it was Amanda Nunes, the winner. And we both went 4-1. and one. We tied. 
again in our prediction show. That makes you 27 and 6 and me 24 and 9 in terms of our predictions. What do you want to see next for Nunez? A trilogy with Pena, potentially a Valentina Shevchenko fight. What do you want? Nah, give her Valentina Shevchenko. That's what I want to see. I don't think there's a need for a trilogy with Pena. I think Pena can build herself up with another fight or two. Then maybe we see that fight happen again down the road. But right now, like you said, I'm totally down with Nunez taking on Valentina right now. Let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some other combat sports, a topic that Jeff wanted to talk about, believe it or not. And then we'll go into the MLB with some headlines, player of the week, and trade deadline conversations. You won't want to miss it right here on WZIP. What's going on? We are back with more Sports Power Talk, the best sports talk show this side of Lake Erie. My name is Jake Murren, the host of your show today. I am joined by my analyst first, Juliana Pina. It's Jeff Longo. Thank you for that. Of course, Jeff. I did better than the guy on ESPN. Yes, you did. did. Yes, you did. I showed you guys that clip during break. Completely destroyed the pronunciation of both women in the main events. And second, Alex Henry. What's up, y'all? You guys ready to keep on talking about combat sports? Absolutely. I love it. A topic proposed by Jeff. For one reason, we're going to talk about some other WWE stuff as well. But you really wanted to talk about Dwight Howard's WWE tryout. Mm -hmm. He started by calling himself the Shogun Master of the South. He got the crowd riled up by talking or by asking who's the master over and over again. He ended by dropping the mic and walking off the stage. Honestly, as a WWE superstar would. So what'd you make of the tryout, Jeff? Um, So, yeah, basically he just cut a promo. I thought it was a pretty good one. Uh, His name is Shonuff, which I think is a good name if you're never going to win like the WWE Championship, like it's like a mid card name. Like I think it's a good mid card name, but never going to be like WWE Champion Show Enough. You know what I'm saying? Or hear me out, WWE Champion Dwight Howard. That that's better. Why do we have to change these guys' names? I don't get it. Yeah. He came up with the name. You tell me. I don't know. I mean, I guess you got a point there. Mm-hmm. But. Um, but then later on, um, other other individuals who were at the tryout giving a promo were roasting Dwight Howard, saying. Like, he wants to be in the WWE, but he couldn't help the Lakers make the playoffs, you know, all that stuff. So then Dwight got a chance to respond and didn't cut as good a promo. But I think a lot of it had to do with him trying to stay as PG as possible. So maybe that's why. Um, But just for a hypothetical scenario, if Dwight Howard ever made it to the WWE and he's building this persona of, I'm this guy that emerged from the shadows, like, I would never be able to take that seriously because I know that's Dwight Howard. Mm-hmm. You know, like right. everybody knows who Dwight Howard is. So I wouldn't be able to buy it. But, you know, maybe if you don't know who Dwight Howard is, it could work for you. I don't know. Which is even more why he should keep his name as it is <laughs> as Dwight Howard. Right. If he does make it to the WWE. I don't really understand the Lakers slander and what that has to do with him trying out for the right. WWE in a promo that probably won't matter in a month or two. Yeah. Alex, do you have any thoughts on Dwight Howard's tryout? No, I actually agree a lot with Jeff. I thought I thought it was cool. I, I The name thing is kind of weird to me. Uh, you look at a guy like Logan Paul who did sign a contract with WWE, and he he put on a performance last night yeah. at SummerSlam. We'll it talk was, about SummerSlam as well. In a it was bit. insane, and he kept his, he not only kept his name, but he kept his persona. He didn't change who he was. He still comes out with the Pokemon cards. He's still the Maverick. And, I, yeah, Dwight Howard could have done the same thing and just been Dwight Howard. Right. Yeah. And it probably would have been really fun, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the name change kind of flew right over my head. I was more so critical of what he said and how he said it. I thought it was a great promo. He had great stage presence, but what bothered me was that he changed his voice when he was talking. He made his voice sound much, much deeper, and it made it not authentic to me. If he keeps his voice the same, I think it's a more authentic promo. I think people will realize, hey, he's actually talking from his heart, then, hey, he's acting as this... Was it Shogun? Shonuff. Shonuff character. <laughs> like, just act like Dwight Howard. Use your regular voice. Say what you said. And I think it's an A-plus promo. But instead, he changed his name and got this all tough voice and didn't really sound like the <laughs> basketball player that we all know. But we'll see what happens with him in the WWE, if that even is a possibility. But the storyline that I really want to talk about in terms of professional wrestling, a storyline that rocked the complete industry on July 22nd as Vince McMahon retired as the CEO of the company. First off, I just want to know your guys' initial reactions to this news. It broke, I believe, two Fridays ago. Um, So it came shortly after he had been accused of a hush money sexual harassment scandal. Um, And to me, you know, like, if you're, if you're innocent... And somebody accuses you of that, you're like, eh, whatever, it's fine. But he retired afterwards, which to me just makes it seem like he's guilty. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and there's been some scandals with him in the past as well. Mm-hmm. And I think the Wall Street Journal prompted this whole discussion and this whole investigation. And I think it was a slippery slope. I think they were getting close. They were getting even more information, even more dirt on Vince McMahon. And honestly, fans have been calling for his retirement for a long time. I think a lot of people thought he would die before he would retire, (laughs) which is a complete fair argument because Vince McMahon's life has been WWE for his entire life. So it's very interesting. Alex, what was your initial reaction? Yeah, I mean, Vince McMahon's obviously a legend um, because what he built and just the influence of how it's literally changed our world and you wouldn't think wwe changed your world but it really did in a sense but in (laughs) vince mcmahon hasn't really ran the company since 2011 i mean it's been you know triple h and stephanie mcmahon who's really been kind of taking over a lot of things and you've just seen that change since around that 2011 time so it, it wasn't really crazy to me to see him retire um, I was a little surprised though, because Jake, I did thought I did think he might die before he retired, but I I was okay with it, and it looks like WWE is really on a good path right now, uh, just in general. Yeah, I mean, I kind of disagree with you in the point that like Triple H and Stephanie McMahon had taken over since 2010, 2011. I still think Vince McMahon had a firm grasp on WWE as a CEO, and especially with creative, which is the on-screen product that we see week in and week out. I don't know. I think I actually think that Vince didn't have as much over creative as you think. And I think that Vince's big thing was actually ruining WWE. I think Vince wanted to cut a lot of guys that shouldn't have been cut. He didn't want to pay a, guy, a lot of guys that should have been paid. And I think when it came to the changes, especially in like female wrestling, I don't think that Vince had anything behind that revolution that was crazy wild. I think that that was a big Stephanie and Triple H thing that he just kind of was okay with, and and a lot of the like a lot of big storylines I think was uh, Triple H and Stephanie. But I obviously can't prove it. But I mean, I think Stephanie pushed the women's division. Yes, 
but ultimately it was still Vince's call of whether that's approved well, or not at, and at how he booked day, it At forward. the end of the day, everything was Vince's, Vince's responsibility to approve it. Yeah. And, like, you look at Paul Levesque, a.k.a. Triple H, he ran NXT for many years, and there was a point in time where NXT was better than Raw and SmackDown. Right. And that was because of Triple H's leadership, his passion for wrestling, and his creative mind that he gave to the NXT brand. And then he was taken off of NXT, and you saw what NXT is when it happened, and now it's the same exact way. It's back to its developmental program, and NXT has not been the same since Vince McMahon took over. And I think a lot of the storylines in today's WWE have been run by Vince. The whole Austin Theory being promoted like crazy, that's all Vince is doing as well. And personally, the reason I was turned off from WWE is because of what Vince has been doing. I don't think, if at all, Stephanie and Triple H had a lot to do with that. But now, of course, with Vince McMahon gone, Triple H is taking over as WWE creative, and Stephanie McMahon and Nick Khan are the co-CEOs of the company. And, of course, last night at SummerSlam, we saw the first pay-per-view without Vince. And I'll admit, as a huge AEW fan and as somebody who has kind of detested the WWE over the past couple of years, I admit it was a great pay-per-view, but it just sent shockwaves throughout the professional wrestling world. And just going back to Vince McMahon for a little bit, what do you guys think this means for the future of the company and even professional wrestling as a whole? Um, So for me, um, I like Triple H taking over as head of creative. Um, He was, he's one of the best wrestlers of all time, you know, wrestled through the attitude era and eras afterwards um and i think that he can you know do a better job of creating storylines and matches and stuff like that and that's why i stopped watching a couple years ago because i just thought the product got stale got the same the same dudes wrestling the same dudes over and over again so maybe he can make the product better in that sense but i do think that eventually i don't know when but eventually i think that wwe will officially crumble and aew will be it's already the superior product, in my opinion, even though I don't really watch it. But I think that it, go. Will, it will be like the the main product and attack, um, attract more attention than WWE. I mean, I love your optimism. I wish I could share the same sentiment. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I don't. Alex, do you have a response for what Jeff just said? Uh, I mean, I to his first point, I also think that WWE will be better with Triple H. And I think a reason for that is he won't have to get a lot of things approved by Vince McMahon anymore. Because like I did say, I do think he ran a lot and it all was up to Vince to approve or not. So now he won't have to get that approval. Um, I I don't think AEW will ever be better than WWE. Um, In a million years, I never see it happening. Better... How do you classify that? Like better in terms of actual product or better in terms of popularity? Uh, selling crowds and popularity. Okay. I don't that's think fair. it will ever. That's what you were talking yeah, about, right? Because yeah. I think AEW right now, what they put on every single week is better than WWE. Yeah. But I don't think there's any way AEW takes over WWE in terms of popularity. No, I don't think so either. And I think I do think AEW's product has been better over the past, ever since AEW became a staple. Uh, I just I do think AEW has or WWE sorry has been getting a lot better uh, since WrestleMania, and I think it'll kind of continue to go even better. And I think the AEW talk of it even being a possibility is kind of gonna uh, fade out, which is sad. But hey. 
Yeah, I with this move, I could see more free agents going to WWE, and I could see AEW hurting a little bit because of that with their on-screen product of WWE bound to improve. But one quote that I really like is that competition breeds excellence. So hopefully Tony Khan and AEW are motivated to further improve their own product and professional wrestling as a whole could not be in a better place right now, which is why I struggle with this because I am such a huge AEW fan, not so much WWE. And you see the WWE take a huge leap in the right direction here with new leaders, new leadership in their company. I think it's better for professional wrestling as a whole, but as a big AEW fan, it gives me a bit of concern seeing that their biggest competitor just got a lot better. They're also going TV 14. Yeah, and that's even bigger news for WWE, too. Going Which is kind of, if you were going to, in, in my opinion, besides this, the wrestling being better, obviously, if you were going to give AEW any big point above WWE, it would be that they are not so kid-friendly, and WWE is, and there's a reason they went to TV 14. Yeah. So, and a hot take, I think AEW does it a little too much. They do. Like, I understand. It's, because it's their thing. It's what they have over WWE. Yeah, and I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the violent wrestling. I enjoy all the spots that are incredibly dangerous and all the blood and all that. But I just think it, they do it way too often. Way too yeah, much. Yeah, and, and you see it so much that it's not as exciting. Yeah. Because it like kind of desensitizes it for you. Yeah, like, oh, this guy has a crimson mask. Oh, yeah, we see that almost on a weekly basis in AEW. Correct. Whereas when it happens once a month or so, it's kind of has that specialness to it. I agree with you there. Any quick thoughts on SummerSlam? We don't have to spend much time on it. But, of course, that pay-per-view was last night as well. Any uh, thoughts you mentioned? Logan Paul's great performance. I thought the Brock Lesnar and Roman Reigns performance was actually pretty good. I was not – I didn't watch any of SummerSlam. Mm-hmm. I saw the highlights on – social media but i know that tractor spot was pretty cool any uh any thoughts on SummerSlam? no dude SummerSlam looked awesome logan paul looked awesome uh by the way combat sports his brother jake paul his um opponent dropped out uh hasim rahman raham jr hasim rahman yeah anyway these guys don't want to fight Jake Paul. They're scared. And I don't blame them because Jake Paul's a legit boxer, and they everybody thinks he's a YouTube boxer, so I wouldn't want to be knocked out by him either. Alex. Can you... I so agree with you, man. Can you explain the tractor spot real quick? Oh. Yeah, so Brock Lesnar <laughs> came out on a tractor, a big tractor, and put the the plow, I guess, yeah. underneath the ring and, and lifted, lifted the up ring. the ring. Okay. So we'll show you pictures during break, but okay. it was awesome. the one corner of the ring was in the air, and Roman Reigns was in the ring, and he, like, tumbled and fell out of the ring. It's something that nobody has ever seen in wrestling before. This is cool. Was it yeah. just a normal match? I think it was best out of three or last man standing. Okay. It wasn't a normal match. Okay. I don't exactly know the stipulation, but... It was one of those one of those wild matches. Are you looking at the picture right now, Jeff? I am. Uh, yeah, that's something I've never seen before. Cool. It's hard for wrestling to do something that fans have never seen before. Mm-hmm. And when it does happen, it's great. It gets talked about a lot. And I give WWE, Paul Levesque, Triple H, a lot of credit for pulling that off. But let's transition from combat sports. We took a lot of time on today's show talking about UFC 277 and all the news with the WWE. But let's get into my favorite topic, 
MLB and our very own Cleveland Guardians. I know we're all hyped to talk about some baseball on today's program. And let's start by talking about some general news before we get to the trade deadline, which is that the international draft is not happening. The MLBPA rejected the MLB's final offer to establish a draft for international entrance. According to the MLBPA press release, they said they sought to establish minimum guarantees in player signings, roster spots, infrastructure investments, playing opportunities, scouting opportunities, as well as enforcement measures to combat corruption. And my favorite quote and the most surprising quote from the release wrote, at their core, each of our proposals was focused on protecting against the scenario that all players fear the most. The erosion of our game on the world stage with international players become the latest victim in baseball's prioritization of efficiency over fundamental fairness. The league's responses fell well short of anything players could consider a fair deal. This press release from the MLBPA was very shocking to me, even though the MLBPA and the MLB aren't on good terms. Overall, though, the draft isn't happening. What are your guys' thoughts on this? Um, so I think that there should definitely be a way in which all prospects, whether that's in the U.S. or um, in foreign countries, all prospects, because baseball, it's worldwide, mm-hmm. all prospects should be able to have the opportunity to reach the MLB in some way, shape, or form. Obviously, it's not happening with the international draft, but a different method should be um, thought about and created so that that way it's fair for all those that want to make it to the MLB one day. Yeah, Alex, any thoughts? Uh, I, I'm I'm a little both ways. Obviously, you know, there's still pro baseball that's not the MLB, uh, just like football, just like hockey, just like basketball. Um, so these guys, it's not like they're not getting a chance, um, but they aren't getting a chance at the MLB necessarily if they want to. So it's, it's kind of weird, uh, but yeah, that's, that's my thoughts. Yeah, we don't see things like this in the NFL and in the NBA for a reason. And I just wish the MLB was run more professionally to where it didn't have as much backlash from its own players like this. Plus, this is a huge deal. I know the international draft, when it was first proposed, we already kind of knew it wasn't going to happen because of these these disagreements between the Players Association and the league. But international players should be welcomed into the MLB, like you said, Jeff. Mm -hmm. There is so much talent overseas that could shine in the U.S. You look at the MLB right now, and some of its most popular players are players from overseas. Shohei Otani has rocked the MLB in the past two, three seasons for a reason, and who knows how many other Shohei Otanis are out there right now that just aren't getting the opportunity because the MLB is so stuck in their ways and not willing to listen to its own players and welcome an international draft. So for me, as probably the most dedicated MLB fan up here at WZIP, it really upsets me that the players in the league just are never on the same page. We saw the lockout this offseason, and now international players are not welcomed into the MLB, or at least the draft anyways is not going to happen anytime soon. But on a lighter note... Let's go into our Player of the Week segment where each of us picks one MLB player to feature for Player of the Week regardless of position and could be for accomplishments on or off the field. There's only one right answer here, guys. I firmly believe, unless it's an emotional reason, if it's for a statistical baseball player reason, there's only one name, 
Jeff, I'm going to go to you first. There's like a 99% chance this is not him. Just going to let you know. Yep. So my player of the week is Christian Yelich. Okay. Is, is that right? No? It's not, but I'm interested in why. So um, when the Brewers played the Red Sox, he scored the Brewers' first run of the game and then got the go-ahead RBI, and he did it in Milwaukee's return to Fenway Park. So kind of an emotional reason, but... I mean, I, I don't... I don't know. I have mixed reactions to it. I don't hate it, but I think that there's a player that played much better than him this week. Alex, I know that we agree on this. Well, yeah, first off, I just want to say I love the sport of baseball. (laughs) Um, And if you're listening, just know that I know a lot about baseball, and I'm not being sarcastic at all. So obviously, with my great knowledge of the game, of baseball, I gotta go with Aaron Judge. I mean, what an incredible week he had, right, Jake? Yes, Aaron Judge did have an incredible <laughs> week. I'm so happy that your sharp baseball mind was able to <laughs> dig out that Aaron Judge was indeed the player of the week. I mean, he's up there for AL MVP conversations. We'll get into some award predictions here in a little bit oh, as of well. Course. <laughs> Alex, you're too much, bro. <laughs> this season, he's batting 300 with 42 home runs, 91 RBIs, 10 stolen bases, and an over 1.0 OPS. The past seven games, what a week he had batting 483 with six home runs, 14 RBIs, and a 559 on base percentage. And you just look at it by a day by day basis. On Thursday, he had a walk off home run in, the, in a 1-0 win over the Royals. On Friday, he robs the Royals of a home run, and then he goes on to hit two home runs himself, one of which was a grand slam in the 11-5 Yankees win. And then on Saturday, he hits yet another home run, which was his 200th career long ball. He joins Babe Ruth and Roger Maris as the only Yankees to hit 40 home runs before the end of July. So I think that is the undoubtedly player of the week, Jeff, are you still sticking with uh, with Christian Yelich here? Yep. That's my guy. <laughs> still think Christian Yelich is the guy. That's my guy. All right. Well, we're going to have to break here. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation on the MLB, talk about the trades that have already happened before Tuesday's trade deadline, get into some trades that could still happen, and talk about our Cleveland Guardians, have some award predictions, all that and more when we come back from break. What's going on, everyone? We're back with more Sports Power Talk, the best sports talk show this side of Lake Erie. We are back with more Sports Power Talk. My name is Jake Murren, the host of your show today, and I'm joined by my analysts. First, Jeff Longville. Go Astros, baby. I hate talking MLB with you, Jeff. And Alex Henry. Man, I love baseball. Let's (laughs) talk about it right now. Yes, let's talk about baseball Right now, as we get into the MLB trade deadline, of course, the deadline is on August 2nd, this Tuesday afternoon. And let's talk about some trades that already went down. First, the Seattle Mariners traded for Luis Castillo. Seattle sent three of their top five prospects in Noel V. Marte, Levi Stout, Edwin Arroyo, and Dylan Moore to the Reds for the two-time All-Star starting pitcher. Castillo stats this season. He's 4-4 with a 2.86 ERA with 90 strikeouts. Any takeaways on the Castillo trade? I mean, the Reds needed to get better, you know, any way they could, so good for them. Well, the Reds got rid of Castillo. 
Right, but they got prospects oh, for the okay. future. So yes, yes. I so I like agree. better as in like long term. Got it, Alex. Yeah, I agree. It's a good trade for the Reds. Uh, you know, low rebuilding can't hurt, right? You know, look at the Guardians and whatnot. Um, yeah, I, I like the trade. Yeah, Luis Castillo, he's a very on-and-off pitcher. His ERA has improved. It's under three right now. He has the stuff, but sometimes he just struggles controlling it, I guess. He can throw over 100 miles an hour. He has some great breaking stuff as well. And for Seattle, who is attempting to contend for a playoff spot, they had that long winning streak before the All-Star break. Right now, their star player, Julio Rodriguez, is dealing with some injuries. So we'll see how the Mariners fare in the second half of the season. But adding Luis Castillo to their rotation certainly will help them. And then I actually agree with you, Jeff. The Reds did get better in the long term, especially with Noel V. Marte. He's a five-tool player. He is going to be great in their future. And getting three of their top five prospects, that's a big deal. And the Reds should be better off in the long term. But as a Reds fan... I'd hate to see this, especially after the offseason they had with selling their entire team. Let's talk about another trade, this one with the New York Mets, as they traded for former Cleveland Guardian Tyler Naquin. The Mets also received Philip Dahl in the trade as well, as they sent minor league pitchers Hector Rodriguez and Jose Acuna to the Reds. Naquin now teams up with former Cleveland teammates Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. You guys have anything for me here on Naquin? It's kind of cool that he'll be teaming up with Francisco again. I like that. I liked Frankie when he was here, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, I I agree. I'm very excited to see them all on the same team. Yeah, I mean, when you take one player that's on one team and then you pick another player on another team and you exchange them, it's a trade. Um, and this, you know, this is that's what happened here with these two guys. <laughs> is that how it works? Yeah. No way. Do, no. <laughs> do both sides have to agree to it? I Yes. Okay. <laughs> both sides have to agree. I'm just trying to get the logistics out so I, I can further understand exactly what a trade is. Yep. And, you know, I, 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 in this one I like. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Uh, Carrasco was asked about the addition of Naquin, and Carrasco said he brings energy every time he's in the outfield. He just goes out there and plays, and he works hard. I really like that guy. I saw him for the first time when I was in Cleveland. He was one of our best prospects, and they brought him up, and he played really well. So, obviously, that Cleveland teammate now, both on the Mets, you love to see that. Let's talk about another team in New York as the Yankees traded for Andrew Benintendi of the Royals. The Yankees sent three minor league pitchers to the Royals for the gold glove outfielder, who will likely replace Joey Gallo in the outfield as Gallo is batting 159 with 12 home runs and 24 RBIs this season. Alex, I'm going to go to you first. Do you just uh, like this trade as well? Uh, yeah, you know, he's a solid hitter. He gets on base good. He's not vaccinated, though. <laughs> Uh, and they still have true. to. They do have to play in the Blue Jay series, so that could hurt them. Uh, but overall, I mean, they're just really fixing the real little things that they need uh, to continue to be a great team. That is true. Not bad. I'm proud of you. Thanks, guys. Good job, Alex. <laughs> Jeff, anything for me on Ben and Tendi? Right, just like Alex said, the Yankees are number one in the AL right now, and they've found a way to improve in what little areas they had to improve on. Yeah, Benintendi, his stats this season, he's batting 315, which is fifth in the majors. He has three home runs and 41 RBIs. 
You're obviously not going to get a lot of power out of Benintendi, but I think his contact and his on-base percentage is really going to do wonders for the Yankees. The Yankees are full of guys that can hit home runs. Adding a guy like Benintendi into that lineup who's just going to get on base, I think that's a great mix to have if you're the New York Yankees. And now let's talk about the biggest storyline in baseball right now. It's the Juan Soto saga right now. And talks are heating up of him going to the San Diego Padres. It seems highly unlikely that the 23-year-old outfielder will still be a national by Tuesday night. And Soto stats this year, he's batting 246 with 246 with 20 home runs, 45 RBIs, and an 883 OPS. Buster Olney reported that some rival executives perceive the Padres as the front runner, and the Padres are even competing this season without their star Fernando Tatis Jr., who is expected to return soon. What do you guys make of the Soto rumors to the Padres? Uh, I think it's pretty much a done deal at this point. Uh, he turned down a 15-year, $440 million extension, which could you imagine being offered that much money? Right. That'd As be nice. a 23-year-old? Mm-hmm. Wow. That'd be nice. Are you 22, Jeff? I am 22. Imagine your next birthday. You get a $440 million contract. And you turn it down. <sighs> Gotta stay humble, I guess, you know, <laughs> some way. Um, if he doesn't want to be there, at least they can try to get something for him. So I think it's pretty much a done deal. Yeah, for sure. Alex, anything? Yeah, you know what the baseball world's saying right now. They're all saying, you know, Soto, where do you go? Oh, that's uh, what I've been hearing around. The, uh, <laughs> that's what you've been hearing? That's what I've been hearing. Okay. And, you know, he, at the end of the day, he doesn't want to be on the team he's on now, so he's going to he's gonna go to another team, and that team looks like it's going to be the Padres. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be the Padres, and got some notifications last night saying yesterday's price is not today's price for Soto. Mm -hmm. Apparently the Nationals are asking for even more prospects and an even bigger haul for the young star outfielder. Adding Juan Soto to a lineup with Tatis when he gets healthy and Machado would be scary combined with the pitching of the Padres. And if they do add him, I think the Padres are right up there with some of the best teams in the MLB in terms of World Series contention. And something I want to talk about with Juan Soto is actually last week's Around the Rue results. The question was, should the Cleveland Guardians pursue Juan Soto before the trade deadline? And the poll had 26 votes. It was actually a 50-50 split on whether the Guardians should pursue Juan Soto. Neither of you were on last week, so you guys didn't give your opinions. I'm assuming both of you voted. What did you vote for and why? I vote yes. At the end of the day, he helps any team. Whether you think he... It's kind of like LeBron James. Whether you want him on your team or not in basketball, he will help your team if you go there, if you take him. Now, there will be those NBA fans that say, oh, I don't want him because look at what we have right now. Soto would help the Guardians at the same way LeBron James would help any team. So I, I would have liked it. I also went with yes, um, because you look at the Guardians right now, they're not winning their division, and in baseball, you want to win your division in, uh, in order to advance in the playoffs, and I think that, like Alex said, he would help the Guardians potentially get to first place in the division, so I said yes. I'm the only dissenting opinion here. I did vote no on the Juan Soto sweepstakes for the Cleveland Guardians. I just think the Guardians have too much at stake right now, too much at risk right now with the minority owner. And we've been sellers and buyers before at the trade deadline. And the price for Juan Soto is ridiculous. 
I don't see us extending him long term if the price is $440 million for that type of contract. And to give up what we would have to give up, you're talking four out of our top five prospects, maybe some MLB-ready players in Andre Semenes, who just made the All-Star game this season, maybe even a guy like Ahmed Rosario as well. And these guys are guys that are in our everyday lineup. I know Juan Soto is a superstar. I know his stats are a little low right now this season, but he's going to rebound. I just don't want to risk so much for the team that we have right now. For Juan Soto, I agree that he could help us. I agree that he might be that extra push that we need to get to first place in our division. But honestly, what does first place in our division even do for us? Sure, it gets gets us into the playoffs, but right now with our team, I don't think getting into the playoffs does much because I don't think we're in that top pyramid of, hey, these are the teams competing for the World Series. I think we're a couple tiers below that. Sure, Juan Soto might take us up a tier, but we're not in that top tier anytime soon with with teams like the Yankees, Mets, Dodgers, Padres right up there in terms of World Series contention. Now, talking about the trade deadline again, I want to know what trades could we expect before Tuesday's deadline. I asked for three trades from both of you that you expect to see. You don't have to say the package that they got in return because in baseball, most of the time, it's just a bunch of minor leaguers. But Alex, I'll go to you first here. Give me a player and what team he's going to play for by Tuesday. Uh, I got Shohei Otani to the Padres. Um, Yeah, it's just, that'd be dope. There's rumors (laughs) of him wanting out, so be a good team to go to. Uh, I got a Braves trade for J.D. Martinez. Uh, and then my my third trade here, I just said Guardians trade for another pitcher or a right-handed hitter. Um, but we really don't have to put all of our eggs in a basket for a trade. It's definitely interesting. Shohei Otani moving. There's been some talks about it. Personally, I don't think it'll happen. I don't know if the Angels right now have I mean, obviously, there's no salary cap in the MLB, but they're already paying some other players a lot, like Mike Trout. I don't know if they'd be willing to pretty much break the bank on Shohei Otani, but he is a great star. He's going to improve any team that he goes to. I think he stays with the Angels, but we'll see what happens with Shohei Otani. I think the Padres are all in on Juan Soto right now. So if Otani does move, I don't think it'll be to San Diego, but hey. You can never rule out anything with the MLB trade deadline. The other two trades, I don't hate. You know, the Boston Red Sox have admitted to being sellers this offseason with J.D. Martinez as, like, the number one guy they're looking to move. And, sure, I could see um, that team being a fit. So, Jeff, I'll go to you for your trades. So I have to admit my first one is a bit of a cop-out because it's one soda to the Padres, which we already talked about. Yeah, I tried to avoid that one with mine. That way I didn't cop out. Right, well... It's okay. I'm sorry I let you down. That's okay. Um, my second one, Josh Bell to the Astros. Uh, Yoli Gariel is struggling this year, and the Astros are going to look to replace him to get some more hitting because that's what great teams do. And number three, I have Wilson Contreras to the Guardians. Okay. Any reasoning for Wilson Contreras to the Guardians? I think he can make us better. Yeah, he is a great catcher. 
I, I'm i going to start with Trey Mancini. He is the longest-tenured Oriole, and he turns 30 on a team that is very much in a rebuilding stage right now. He practically already said goodbye to Baltimore, and I think he can serve as a great DH or first baseman on a World Series contending team. That team I have him going to is the New York Mets. They could use another DH or a first baseman piece. He's batting 272 with 10 home runs and 41 RBIs this season. My next trade involves Wilson Contreras, but I actually have him going to your favorite team, the Houston Astros. He has been the best catcher in the league this season, batting 255 with 14 home runs, 38 RBIs. And he becomes a free agent after this year, so the Cubs are likely going to move off from him. The Astros are going to get deep into the postseason, in my opinion, but they have some of the worst catching in the league with Martin Maldonado, Corey Lee, and Jason Castro filling their roster spots. In my opinion, the addition of Contreras into their lineup would make the Astros even more competitive come October. You know what's going to happen? They're going to get both of them now, now that you said that. They're getting Josh Bell and Wilson Contreras. I mean, maybe. That's definitely their two glaring weaknesses, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're committed to buying and they have enough prospects to do it. I mean, it, it could happen. I'm not going to roll that out. Then my last trade idea is with the New York Yankees. I don't think they're done quite yet in making moves before the deadline. I think they're going to add a great starting pitcher in Pablo Lopez of the Marlins, who is 7-5 and with a 3.03 ERA and 118 strikeouts this season. Like I said, he's on the Marlins, who has no offense this season. So I think Pablo Lopez's numbers increase significantly in the best way possible by joining the Yankees. And Lopez's stats, they'd be, they'd be better, and he would be a great third piece in that Yankees rotation behind Garrett Cole and Nestor Cortez. So those are the three trades I have happening. We all have different ones and we'll see what happens before Tuesday. I'm very excited to see all these MLB trades. And next Sunday's SBT will break down all the moves. So look forward to that. But let's talk about our very own Cleveland Guardians as trade conversations have gotten to them as well. And there are reports of Shane Bieber being available before the trade deadline. The Guardians are willing to listen to trade offers for the two-time All-Star, All-Star MVP, and 2020 Cy Young winner, Shane Bieber. Jeff Passan of ESPN wrote, Cleveland, as it has done every year for seemingly a decade now, is willing to trade its controllable starting pitching, namely right-handers Zach Plesak and Aaron Savali. Even Shane Bieber could be had. That's more about Cleveland's longstanding willingness to talk about anyone for the right price for Bieber. That price is exorbitant. We'll talk about Plesak in just a little bit. Let's start with Shane Bieber. What do you guys make of this news? It'd be interesting to see what they would want in return for their starting pitcher. You know, like, are they going to try to bring in more pitching or mm. pieces elsewhere? So that's been interesting to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, Shane Bieber, you look at him, and it's just like me personally who doesn't follow baseball as much, but I do follow the Guardians. I always just hear Shane Bieber doing really good, Shane Bieber doing really bad. And I like a lot of inconsistency in his game, so it, it, I I want to know where their mindset is with him necessarily, and if they do think he is that guy that can stay consistent, or if they're they think another team sees more in him than they do, and they're willing to do something about it. 
Yeah, he's certainly not the Shane Bieber that we've seen in seasons prior to this one. I think that has a lot more to do with the lockout and the shortened spring training and how that affected all pitchers across the MLB. Personally, I hate that we're taking calls on Shane Bieber, but from an organization standpoint, I guess I understand just, hey, taking a call. And like Jeff said, seeing what we could even get for a guy like Shane Bieber, he is our ace for a reason. And right now, the Guardians are struggling with their starting pitching, so I don't think it makes sense to get rid of any pieces, including Shane Bieber and including Zach Plesak, who has also drawn interest, and he is reportedly on the Phillies' radar. According to John Heyman, the Phillies are interested in him, and the Phillies are going to have to compete down the stretch to make the playoffs, and adding Plesak behind Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler in their rotation could help them do just that. His stats this season for Plesak, he's 2-9 and nine with a 4.33 ERA and 79 strikeouts. What do you guys make of the rumors about Plesak, too? So, um, with the Phillies looking to make this move to do better in the playoffs, that kind of puts me in the mindset of they want to be better like for right now. Like They're in more of a win-now mode. So maybe the Guardians can give him up and get some pieces for the future. Like you said, You know, if we make the playoffs this year, it doesn't really do much for us. But maybe we add those pieces from the Phillies and we get better You know, as the years go on. Yeah, I, I can see it helping long-term as well, uh, Jeff. Can we... I feel so strongly about this. Can we just not trade our starting pitching right now? When Aaron Savale is injured, we're having to rely on Pilkington, who has a 4.17 ERA. And when we have Brian Shaw, of all relievers, actually starting ball games, he's already started one game. And the starting pitcher for today's game, Cleveland Guardians, taking on the Tampa Bay Rays, it's Shane McClanahan for the Rays, who is up there in terms of AL Cy Young debate, and Brian Shaw, who is a relief pitcher with an ERA over Box five. office. It's box office. It's just so frustrating to me because I don't understand why we're even selling right now if that's the move. I think we should just stay how we are. I don't think we should buy or sell at the trade deadline. And the reports of us potentially selling isn't even our lineup or guys who I think are expendable like Fran Mil Reyes. Instead, it's Shane Bieber and Zach Plesak, our number one and two guys in our rotation. I know Tristan McKenzie's on the rise. He's probably going to become our number two guy. But right now, Zach Plesak has been trusted with that number two position, even with that pretty terrible 2-9 and nine record so far. So I ask you guys, obviously, my opinion is no. But do you guys think we should make any moves before the trade deadline on Tuesday? I would say yes, but maybe don't trade, you know, both pitchers. That doesn't really seem to make sense to me. So maybe just one of them and see if we can get some pieces, you know, in other positions or for the future. All right, Alex? Yeah, like I said earlier, I you know, don't put all of our eggs in a basket. And I, I think that next year this Guardians team can be serious contenders already. Uh, so why... Why trade for something really big right now um, when we don't have to really give up much and we'll be much, much stronger and better next year? Yeah, I agree. I think with a new minority owner, we need to let that soak in and become spenders in the future. Usually I'm all in for grabbing that extra bet at the deadline, but right now we are in a position to contend for the World Series. I'd rather hold on to what we have and look to the future for other trade deadlines and opportunities. Let's talk about the recent stretch for the Guardians, especially with the Tampa Bay 
the Tampa Bay Rays series going on right now. That's recapping today. I already mentioned Shaw going up against McClanahan today at 140. Let's talk about the series in general, though. On Friday, we won 4-1. to one. On Saturday, yesterday, we lost 6-4. to four. You guys have anything for me on the Rays series? Uh, it'd be good for us to win the series on the road uh, as, again, we're trying to build ourselves up and contend. Um, so I think if we can win today, we win the series on the road, and that'd be good for us. Now only two games out from the Twins in first place in the AL Central. Anything for me, Alex? Yeah, well, the Guardians are on a win-lose, win-lose um, track right now, so that means they're going to win today. Are you predicting <laughs> it? Yeah. Final score. There's a pattern. Uh, I don't know. It'll probably be something maybe I'd go like 9-4. to four, probably. 9-4? to four. Sheesh. Guardians W. Who Absolutely. Gets, who gets those four runs for the Guardians, Alex? Uh, everybody. Everybody. <laughs> yeah. Can I put you on the spot? Who's going to get them? Yes. I mean, you know, there's just so many guys <laughs> that I can name right can now. Can you name three Guardians? <laughs> yeah, you got Jose. Batters. You got Jose Ramirez. Okay, he's he's up there. Can you name two other batters on the Cleveland you Guardians? Got Josh Naylor. Hey, yes. That's okay. really about all I know, honestly. Austin Hedges is just scoring all of them. Oh, You're such a troll with the MLB stuff. I love it, Jeff, but it does get annoying. <laughs> Let's talk about some MLB awards, um, Alex. Let's break the fourth wall, man. You came in today. You showed me your awards. <laughs> <laughs> so t- tell everybody what happened. All right, guys. So in case you didn't know by now, listening, I don't know uh, a lot about baseball. So when I was doing my research for the show, uh, I was looking at an article from last year, and I didn't even know about it. And if I wouldn't have asked uh, Jake Murren, who was a goat, about it, then... I would have sounded really, really <laughs> unintelligent. It wasn't show. last year. It was an article in April predicting oh, yeah, an article this year's April awards this, so, yeah. before the season even started. Yeah, I think Bryce Harper was the MVP for the NL who's been out for a couple months with that's, an injury. And that's what I was going to say on the show. Yeah. So. yeah. I'm, I'm glad I saved you from that one. But let's start by talking about the MLB awards. Of course, we're already after the Midsummer Classic, so I thought it would be fun to talk and predict all these awards. Let's start with Manager of the Year. You can go ahead and rattle off your AL and NL picks. Jeff, I'll go to you first. Uh, for the AL, I got Aaron Boone. For the NL, I got Dave Roberts. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I have the same picks here. Aaron Boone, he has the best record in the AL for the Yankees at 69 and 33, which is also the best record in baseball. He also does lead the league in manager ejections this season, which is pretty interesting. It's definitely a flaw in his record, but I still expect him to win AL Manager of the Year for the NL. Same thing, Dave Roberts of the Dodgers, best record in the NL at 67 and 33. We can probably disagree here for Rookie of the Year. Alex, I'll go to you first this time, AL and NL. Uh, Yeah, my AL, I got to go with my boy Julio Rodriguez. He's just been playing good ball. (laughs) And then you look at my NL, (laughs) Rookie of the Year, uh, it's got to be Mackenzie Gore, man. Mackenzie Gore of what team? (laughs) The, uh... You knew it before the show started. The, the... Uh, Yankees. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Mackenzie Gore of the brown and yellow team. 
the team that you predicted Shohei Otani to go to. Oh, you, the Padres. I was just messing of around. Man. <laughs> I was just messing around. Dude. Okay, I got you. <laughs> Jeff, go ahead. I also have Julio Rodriguez, but for the NL, I have Louis Gonzalez. Okay. Do you know what team he plays for? The Giants. There you I'm go. I'm a real baseball fan, Jake. Yeah, come on. <laughs> See what it's like, Alex? All the knowledge that you could gain. I'm learning a lot right now, guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for Rookie of the Year, I agree. In the AL, it's got to be Julio Rodriguez. He's batting two seventy one in the standout rookie year for the Mariners, also batting with 18 home runs, 57 RBIs. He's been slugging the ball really well, and he also has speed, which is very rare. Speed and power doesn't really complement itself in most players in the MLB. Certainly does for rookie Julio Rodriguez. For the NL, I have Spencer Strider of the Braves. In 80.1 innings pitched, he is 5-3 and three with a 2.91 ERA and 120 strikeouts. He doesn't get too deep into games, but I've always noticed that he puts up a high strikeout number. So I'm going to go with Spencer Strider for NL Rookie of the Year. Let's talk about Cy Young, or as Alex would like to say, C.Y. Young. Those were letters and words that came out of your mouth before today's show. So Alex, who do you have for C.Y. Young? For the... <laughs> For the AL, I have Garrett Cole. And for the NL, I have Corbin Burns. Okay, Jeff. For me, AL, it's got to be Justin Verlander, right? It's got to be my dog. And then NL, Tony Gonsolin. Okay. For the AL, I also have Justin Verlander. As you should. In 124 innings pitched, he has 14-3 and three with a sub-2 ERA and 122 strikeouts. He's first in wins, second in ERA, and second in whip this season. He's only given up four earned runs in his past six starts as well. He's on fire right now. For the NLF, Sandy Alcantara. He is 9-4 and four in 149.1 innings pitched. He has a sub-2 ERA as well with 138 strikeouts. He's third in ERA and first in innings pitched this season. Then I think his stats would be even better, like I mentioned with Pablo Lopez, if he played for a different team other than the Marlins. Let's go to MVP before we go to break here. Who do you guys have for AL MVP? Only give me AL MVP right now. Um, Yeah, you know, there's a lot of good guys, but it's got to be Jose Ramirez. Oh, man. I love it, but obviously. it's not right, Jeff. You could say Aaron Judge, which I'm, I'm assuming is who you have. But you're wrong because it's your Navarez. Just riding with your Astros That's the right. entire way. Aren't... That's right. Yes, I am going with Aaron Judge here. He has a 300 batting average, 42 home runs, 91 RBIs. He's first in home runs, run scored, and RBIs in the entire league. He's having a historic season right now. And the only other guy that could combat him right now would be Shohei Otani. And the only reason for that is because he bats and pitches. But I'm over that trend right now. Aaron Judge is the most electric batter in the MLB right now. He's setting milestones, breaking stats, absolutely deserving of AL MVP this season. Who do you guys have for NL? I'll go to Jeff first for this one. I have Paul Goldschmidt. I agree. (laughs) Paul Goldschmidt's been your guy up here. Yeah, he's the GOAT. (laughs) I don't know about the GOAT, but he is second in the MLB in batting average and OPS, and he leads the league in on-base percentage. He's batting .333 with 24 home runs and 78 RBIs. So I do agree with you guys there. 
Paul Goldschmidt for NL MVP. So that's going to do it for our baseball segment. Do you guys enjoy it? Have fun. Love baseball. I know you guys were looking forward to it. I'm already sad it's over. You're sad it's over? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I really am too. But when we come back from break, our final break of today's show, we're going to transition to the NFL. Training camp is underway. We're going to talk about DK Metcalf's new deal, some interesting things with Kyler Murray's new deal, have our around the route question, and of course goes through the top 10 QBs in the NFL right now. We're going to have a lot of fun at doing those rankings, all that and more when we return. What's going on, everyone? We are back with more Sports Power Talk, the best sports talk show there is, was, and ever will be. We are back for our last segment of today's show. My name is Jake Murray, the host. I am joined by Jeff Longville. I promise I actually know football. And next year, CY Young winner... Alex Henry. What's up, y'all? Alex, we're talking about football. I know you're much more well-versed in this topic, and you had a big day yesterday. We already talked about the legends that you met in an even bigger day as you went to Brown's training camp. Talk us through that experience. Yeah, really shortly, yeah, the um, the Browns yesterday took the field, practice. Uh, my takeaways, personally, was that I thought Deshaun was clicking with the offense quite well. This defense looks so good, and I'm going to say that my prediction is that this will be the best Browns defense of all time this next season, uh, and I don't think that's crazy to say at all. Uh, but our backup quarterbacks, uh, they weren't really looking too hot, which did kind of worry me, but obviously it was a hot day. It was the first day, so yeah, overall, I was pretty happy with it. And special teams looked really good, too. That's awesome. I did see some highlights from training camp. It looks like a great time for the Cleveland Browns. Let's talk about some DK Metcalf news as he earned a new three-year, $73 million contract extension with the Seahawks. The deal includes a $30 million signing bonus, which is the highest ever for a wide receiver. He now becomes the sixth highest paid receiver in the league, and he will be in in Seattle through the 2025 season. What do you guys make of the DK Metcalf news? I like it because you look at Seattle with their QB room of Geno Smith and the one time when I used to refer to him as the future of the NFL, and I was very wrong, Drew Locke. Um, Seattle's going to be looking for a quarterback next year, whether that's through free agency or the draft. And keeping DK gives whoever that quarterback is a solid weapon when they come to Seattle, especially when you talk about how um, Chris Carson, who announced his retirement a couple of days ago, he's no longer going to be with Seattle. So keeping all the weapons that Seattle can for whoever that QB is is good for them. And I thought it was the right amount. It's more than Terry McLaurin, but less than A.J. Brown. Yeah, Alex, any takeaways? Yeah, I love it for Seattle. They need, they needed a big wide receiver. They got it, uh, arguably one of the better wide receivers in the league. But Jeff, you're right. They don't have a quarterback right now. Like no. they, they got Drew Locke, and uh, they got to get somebody else. Yeah, I actually love this more for DK Metcalf than I do for Seattle. I still think that Seattle will finish last in their division behind the Rams, Cardinals, and 49ers. Metcalf could make Drew Locke look good, but Locke hasn't really done anything or achieved anything in his career yet. I think Metcalf should be happy not only with the money in the contract, but the opportunity to prove himself in a short-term deal 
and go on to potentially a more competitive team to make even more money in his second contract. That three-year um, limit in his contract, that's what I see as most important. He's only going to be there for three years, making a lot of money. If he plays well, he's going to go on. Like I said, potentially a more competitive team, make even more money there. Do you guys have anything for me on like what this means for Seattle going forward? Do you still see them at the last in their division? see them jumping over maybe the 49ers or Cardinals? I still think they'll be last just because of that lack of QB play. But, you know, going forward when they bring in a new quarterback and they have time to get chemistry down with DK, they could be a contender. Yeah, I'd like to see Seattle make a lot more moves, too. Uh, They've kind of just been the same team for a long time, and they're not bringing in enough, I think. uh, And I think they should bring in more. Yeah, I do agree with you guys there. Yeah, I do agree with you guys there. And the next topic, potentially the topic I've been most looking forward to talking about today, is Kyler Murray, as his contract at first required him to study film. It was called the Individual Study Clause that required him to complete at least four hours of independent study during game weeks. Murray did confront the media and said, to think that I can accomplish everything that I have and not be a student of the game and not take this serious is disrespectful. The individual study clause was eventually removed from the contract. Huge news here and just very interesting news as we've never seen something like this before. What did you guys make of the whole Kyler Kyler Murray situation this week? So I have another quote about that from the New York Post. Um, Kyler Murray took to the podium and listed all of his accomplishments from high school, college, and the NFL. And he said, I can't afford to take any shortcuts. Those are things you can't accomplish if you don't prepare the right way. I don't really see a problem with the independent study clause being in his contract. I think it's just an easy way for Arizona to make sure that Kyler does what is already expected of him to do. And for Kyler, it's easy money to spend four hours a week watching film. Yeah, that's true. And the Cardinals did make a statement after they removed the clause from his contract. They said, after seeing the distraction it created, we removed the addendum from the contract. It was clearly perceived in ways that were never intended. Our confidence in Kyler Murray is as high as it's ever been, and nothing demonstrates our belief in his ability to lead this team more than the commitment reflected in this contract. Alex, anything for me on Kyler Murray's contract? I loved it. I thought it was a great idea. His his weakness, like many young quarterbacks who come into the league nowadays, is they don't study defenses, and they think that their talent is going to be enough, and that I'm not going to name any names, but they go and they throw into bad coverages where it's these defenses run the same coverages every week, very easy reads, and they if they would study film like quarterbacks have done forever, like they should... They, would, they wouldn't have these problems, so study the film. And I think it is kind of disrespectful. I'd be pretty upset if I saw it if I was Kyler Murray too. But at the same time, even if it's not in the contract, I hope that, that them wanting to put it in the contract is enough to wake him up and be like, Kyler Murray has the potential to be a top-10 quarterback. And if he does fix these minor flaws in his game, then... He's, yeah. he's going to do that. One more point that I want to make is that I don't think it was disrespectful to put it in the contract itself, but I think it was more disrespectful how the media was taking it, like making fun of him, saying, wow, Kyler doesn't study film and all this. Like, yeah. Like, no, I just think it was put in there just as an extra insurance policy to make sure Kyler does what is already expected of him. Good point. Yeah, I completely agree. And look, he signed the contract. 
Right. He saw the clause. He still signed it. And then once the media got their hands on it, that's when this whole thing spiraled mm-hmm. and people took it the wrong way. Of course, that's what the Cardinals said in their statements. Kyler Murray obviously frustrated with how the media took it as well. Personally, it was just interesting to see it in his contract. Almost felt like he hasn't been watching a film even though, sure, that should be expected from your starting quarterback. Regardless, though, he does get paid. We'll see what the Cardinals do next year with Hopkins obviously out for a little bit. Uh, Jeff, do you have anything more for me on Kyler Murray? This makes me wonder, are clauses like this, are they put in other contracts and this is just the one that ended up getting leaked, or is this like a one-time thing This has never happened before? So I don't know if it was like a leaked situation or if it was just kind of out there and available. Right. I don't know if it was oh, no, we accidentally released this, and now everybody knows about it. I just think it was something that, you know, the Ian Rappaports and the Adam Schefters of the world got their hands on, and then everybody took it in their own way. Potentially it's happened before. I mean, I guess it could. Right. But I think it's interesting to see it in today's game of football with Kyler Murray. Mm-hmm. So another contract that has something like this, we're not going to talk about the NBA for too long here, but... With the conversation about contracts, I did want to talk about Zion Williamson, as his contract requires him to stay under 295 pounds with the Pelicans. So another clause in another professional athlete's contract. What do we think of contracts now having these more restrictive clauses? I Again, I don't really see a problem with it unless it's something that's super unrealistic. Um, for an NBA player... To be under 295 pounds, in my opinion, is not too unrealistic. I mean, I know Zion's huge, but getting him to be under 295 really shouldn't be that big a deal. Um, I I don't have a problem with it, you know, as long as it's not something, like, super unrealistic and something super hard to ask of that athlete. And, again, it's a lot of this is just easy money for the athletes to earn. So, Yeah, that is true. Alex, any for me on uh, Zion Williamson. I really agree with Jeff. Um, you know, obviously big dogs got to eat, but big dogs got, don't got to eat so much. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of how I feel. Zion, he he's literally has the potential to be the best player in the NBA within the next two, three years, maybe this season, honestly. But his weight's going to hold him back, and it's going to cause injuries, too. These guys are putting money into Zion. They're going to want him to be the Zion that they drafted, not the Zion with his NBA money that went out to too many five stars. Do you see that potential in, in Zion, Jeff? I do, but, you know, obviously, first of all, he has to play. Uh, New Orleans has to let him play through injury and not, oh, Zion stubbed his toe on his coffee table. He's out for two months. Like, let sure. him play through pain. It's part of the game. Yeah, sure. That's a good point. And one more topic on basketball. The really, really only big headline this week in the NBA, I'd say, was the conversation of Kevin Durant going to the Celtics. There was a deal involved, including all-star Jalen Brown, who tweeted SMH after the rumors. Jeff, I know you're the main basketball guy here, so any quick thoughts for me on KD to the Celtics? And your alternate universe episode one kind of had this going it, down it in did. a complete different world. but It you know. did. Um, so Boston offered Jalen Brown, Derek White, and a draft pick for Kevin Durant. But Brooklyn wanted Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and more draft capital, and potentially one more rotation player. And Boston has a lot of draft capital. They can offer up to three picks and two pick swaps for KD. And since they have a solid, younger roster, they can afford to give up some draft capital. Um, if Boston trades Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart, let's say they also give up Derek White because they already offered him you know, in the previous uh, offer, could they win 
with a roster of Malcolm Brogdon, Jason Tatum, Kevin Durant, Al Horford, Robert Williams, and Grant Williams? I think yes. I think that their their starting lineup would look a little bit weird. Like you'd have Brogdon at the one, and then do you put KD at the two? I think that his skill set would let him play the two, but you know his size. It's a little bit unusual to see him, a guy like that size, play the two. But I think if you want to put your best lineup out there, you put KD at the two, Tatum at the three, Horford at the four, and then uh, Robert Williams at the five. Um, and the mindset of Boston, in my opinion right now, is we've had a good team for a long time. Haven't been able to win a championship, though. We brought in solid free agents. We changed coaches. We changed presidents of basketball operations. Still haven't won. If we land Kevin Durant, even at the expense of giving up somebody like Jalen Brown, we can for sure win with KD, and I believe that. Uh, and if I'm Boston, I'm obviously trying to keep Marcus Smart. And if I'm Brooklyn, I'm trying to get Marcus Smart. Um, I want to. If I'm Boston, I want to keep Marcus Smart because if we get KD, it greatly increases our chances of winning a championship. We keep the Defensive Player of the Year. We keep the heart and soul of our team. We keep our longest tenured player. Um, but if I'm Brooklyn, I want Marcus Smart because. We're giving up Kevin Durant, and Kyrie Irving is, I believe, eventually going to leave, whether that's this season or next season. So we want to get some solid pieces if we're giving up our two superstars. Um, so I'm going to try to get Marcus Smart as well, but trading for an all-star caliber, all-star caliber player in Jalen Brown, a solid rotation player in Derek White, and a lot of draft capital, that's enough for me. But I'm also going to try to get Marcus Smart, but if I don't, it's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, I'll ask you one follow-up before we go back to the NFL and talk about some QB rankings. When I saw the news break, of course Marcus Smart is a valuable player, especially on the defensive side of the ball. But if you're willing to give that much up for Kevin Durant, to me, if you're the Celtics, why not throw in Marcus Smart to get one of the best players in the league right now? I, I think it has a lot to do with uh, what Marcus Smart, like the intangibles that Marcus Smart brings. You know, He's the heart and soul of that team. You know, he's the defensive player of the year. You don't really want to give up somebody that's that good of a defensive player. And like I said, he's the longest-tenured Celtic, has poured his heart and soul into this organization. So I understand them not wanting to give him up. But if I really want KD and I really want to win, I am willing to do it. So if you're the Celtics, you would throw Marcus Smart in there to get KD? I would. If I could avoid it, I would obviously try. But if it's necessary, I would do it. All right. Well, makes sense. Let's talk about... Some quarterbacks now, back to the NFL, and we're going to start by having our round the rue question of the week, where we debate around the table and bring it to you via our Twitter page, at WZIP Sports, of course. And this week, it's not very, like, it's not a very prevalent question right now in the sports world, but we did have this debate in our WZIP Sports group chat and it's a fun question, so I thought we would share it with all of our followers on Twitter. The question is simply, who's the best Browns quarterback of all time? We have four options. First, Otto Graham. Second, Bernie Kosar. Third, Brian Sipe. And then the fourth option is just other, because the Browns have had so Deshaun many Kaiser. so many great quarterbacks in their history. So if you're thinking along the lines of, Brian Hoyer, Deshaun Kaiser, Johnny Manziel, Brock Osweiler even, Josh McCown, Brandon Whedon. That's what that other category is really for. <laughs> Tim Just, Couch? Yeah, why not? We've had so many great quarterbacks that that other category was really needed. But between Graham, Kozar, and Sype, who do you guys think is the best Browns quarterback of all time? 
Oh, well, somebody who I do think is a really, really, really good quarterback that's not on that other list um, that I think is better than some of the people is Frank Ryan. Uh, I mean, guy got four playoff appearances. He was very, very good um, with his days with the Browns back in the 60s. But that is not my pick. Uh, I go Otto Graham. Otto Graham's a GOAT of the Browns quarterbacks. It's not even close. The amount of awards he's won, Hall of Fame quarterback, that's it, right? There's not another Browns Hall of Fame quarterback. <laughs> it's got to be Otto Graham. Yeah. Um, I'll keep it short and sweet. For me, I understand that he played in an era where teams played less games in the regular season and the playoffs, and there were also less teams in general, but I'm also going Otto Graham. Won four AAFC titles and three NFL titles and played in the championship game in both leagues every year he played professional football, which was 10 years, and won seven of them and won three MVPs. It's autogram, no question. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Honestly, it's weird to see this debate in our group chat because there were some dissenting opinions, but I'm right there with you guys. Autogram, he's the GOAT of Brown's quarterbacks, only Hall of Famer like you mentioned. Alex, you mentioned his intangibles, his championships, and his MVPs, Jeff. I do think Bernie Kosar is the most recent great quarterback of the Browns, so I think he might get some votes for that. And then yeah. Brian Seip, he had that he had those eleven game winning drives from nineteen seventy nine to nineteen eighty, which coined the term cardiac kids, of course. He also won the NFL MVP in nineteen eighty. And no disrespect on Frank Ryan either. That could actually be a legitimate other votes for people out there who want to vote for him but i think Otto Graham is the pick here and i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of those who those people who are voting also agree with us pick Otto Graham. i expect at least like 80 percent Otto Graham here let's talk about some other qb rankings though as madden 23 revealed their top 10 qb rankings as tom brady aaron Rodgers, patrick mahomes josh allen joe burrow dak prescott Justin Herbert, Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson, and Matthew Stafford. Madden 23 has a new hotline that fields complaints on their ratings. And the hotline received over 1,000 calls on the first day. We're not going to argue about Madden, Madden rankings because simply they don't matter. But we are the actual analysts here. We are sports analysts here at WZIP Sports. So we're going to do the same as Madden by ranking the top 10 QBs in the league right now. Alex, I know you're really excited about this, so I'm going to go to you first. Let's just start with number 10 and get that one out of the way. Yeah, I put a lot of time into this. Very excited. Um, 10's probably my most controversial, but it shouldn't be. It's Derek Carr. Um, In the last seven years, he leads every quarterback with the most game-winning drives. 30. 30 game-winning drives. That's one of the most important things you can do as a quarterback bring your team down the field, has the highest completion rating of any quarterback in the last four years, has never really had a good team. Um, that was crazy good. He's always had an awful organization with the Raiders. And, you know, people don't talk about Derek Carr because maybe he didn't go to the biggest college. Maybe he wasn't the most talked about quarterback. But if I was going to start a team with these quarterbacks and I had to pick a quarterback, he would be the 10th quarterback I pick in the league, Derek Carr. A Raiders fan picking Derek Carr. As their tenth best quarterback, and that's no bias. There's no bias. I more so see Derek Carr as a eleven through fifteen. I don't think Matt Ryan's better than him. I don't think. Well, yeah, I don't think that either. But I don't think I anybody that's out of my top ten. I don't think is better than Derek Carr. 
I would put Derek Carr in the 11 to 15 range. But, Jeff, who's your number 10? So I have an honorable mention because I really wanted to throw him in there. He just barely missed the cut. Uh, it's Dak Prescott. Um, stats from last year are slightly better than number 10, but Dak's receiving core got worse, and my number 10s got better, especially when one of them comes back from suspension. Bit of a spoiler there, but number 10, I have Kyler Murray. Like I said, DeAndre Hopkins is suspended for six games, but when he comes back, he's going to have Hop, Hollywood Brown, A.J. Green, and Zach Ertz. And he's also a dual threat quarterback, and I think Arizona is going to take a step forward in getting back. They got they got back to the playoffs last year. I think they're going to take a bigger step forward this next year. Yeah, I don't hate it. Number ten, I have Matthew Stafford. I agree that he could be a bit higher in some lists, but I do have him at number ten. Of course, he won the Super Bowl last year. He has great arm talent, but he can get intercepted a lot and is getting a bit older. So I put a lot of younger guys on the rise ahead of him. Going to number nine, though, Alex, right back to you. Uh, Lamar Jackson, and this was tough between Lamar and Kyler. I just think Lamar is more proven, uh, most versatile quarterback in the league probably. So it's pretty simple, Lamar at nine. I also have Lamar at nine. I think that we're going to see Lamar uh, go back to being more of a rushing quarterback this year because of his lack of receiving weapons, and that's another reason why he's down here at number nine. Um, I think that defenses are going to key in more on that as the season goes on and limit him, but... His two best years in the league were the years that he was running more than throwing. Um, last year, he tried to become more of a pocket-passing quarterback, and it led to more interceptions, more sacks, stuff like that. Uh, so I think with him going back to running, he'll be better than he was last year, but given um, the lack of receivers, defense is keying, keying in on him, and that Baltimore's running back room should be healthier this year, I think his production will be limited to only being number 9. All right, so... A little bit of controversy here, but at number nine, I have Deshaun Watson. I don't know if he, got, if he made your guys' top ten list. Obviously, we haven't seen Watson play in forever, but I do think the talent is certainly there in both passing and running the ball. If he plays this season, however long he plays this season, I think he's going to be great for the Browns' offense. And I do think he deserves a spot in the top ten, probably lower because he hasn't played in so long and who knows how he'll come back, even though most people expect him to go right back to how he was playing. But I do have Deshaun Watson at number nine. Going to number eight, Alex, I'll go right back to you for this one. Justin Herbert, more yards and touchdowns than any other QB in their first two years. Dude's a stud, just needs to fix some of his young quarterback mistakes. I put him at eight. For me, I got my guy, Russell Wilson, at number eight. Um, he's the final piece to making Denver a contender. has a good group of receivers, but he's going to a new team, a new system with a new head coach and a new offensive coordinator. And, of course, he's going to the toughest division in football, and he's coming off an injury. Um, so I couldn't put him any higher than eight. All right, that's fair. I have Justin Herbert at number eight, so I agree with you, Alex. He's right up there with Rodgers, Allen, and Mahomes for having a strong and accurate arm. But I think he's still young, and I think there's more room for development in his game with the Chargers, which is actually scary for the rest of the league. So with that, I put him at number eight. Number seven, Alex, go ahead and take it away. I got Joe Burrow, highest completion rating last year with an awful O-line. It's got to be Joe Burrow. I have... Matthew Stafford had a career year last year, was third in passing yards and second in touchdowns, but led the league in interceptions. Um, he got Cooper Cup back, which is huge. They added Allen Robinson. 
And I think uh, the Rams are going to try to establish a better ground game this year, which will take away from Stafford's production, so I have him at 7. All right, I have Lamar Jackson here at number 7. I know you guys both had him at number 9. Defensive Defenses have slightly figured him out, but the former MVP is still talented both in the air and on the ground. I do have him a little bit higher on this list for the reason. Number 6, Alex, go ahead. Uh, I got Matthew Stafford, and for a lot of the reasons that Jeff had Matthew Stafford, along with you know coming off the Super Bowl, and that he's um, he's getting to that like kind of veteran stage, so I put him at six. So you guys are not going to agree with this at all. Um, I, I know it. I have Aaron Rodgers at six. Obviously, he's coming off of back-to-back MVPs, but he lost his only real reliable target in Devonta Adams and free agency. He's going to be relying heavily on pieces that I think are just complimentary. Um, a rookie, Christian Watkins, and Robert Tunyon. I believe he'll make it work to an extent, but again, not a dig on him or his talent or anything, but just given what limited weapons he has, I can't put him any higher than six. Wow. You're going to make an enemy in Dan Groen. Hopefully he's not listening right now. Oh, well. Dan knows it. Dan, Dan knows everything I just said is accurate. No, he thinks uh, Christian Watson's going to be the rookie of the year. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Hey, back-to-back MVPs. We'll see I mean, it's not out of the Rose. question, but I don't have him winning rookie of the year. Well, I have your boy, Russell Wilson, at number six. I appreciate that. He's one of the more reliable QBs in the league, and while his numbers have been down in recent years, he's getting a fresh slate in Denver with new weapons, which I think will remind a lot of people about just how good Russell Wilson is. Number five, Alex. Broncos country. Let's ride. I got Russell Wilson at number five. I love I, it. I think that Russell Wilson is, he's always, he's kind of like Derek Carr, <clears throat> except he's achieved a lot more in his career, but just that a lot of people always overlook him as soon as he starts playing bad. But like Russell Wilson playing bad for Seattle would have been very good for a lot of other teams. So it's just that I think a lot of people hold him to that old standard that he was, and I think he can be that in Denver, so I got him at five. Thank you, Alex. Uh, For me, I have Justin Herbert at five. Um, In his second year in the NFL, he was second in passing yards to only Tom Brady, Um, but the Chargers' defense was 30th in scoring last year, which should improve with the additions of guys like Khalil Mack and J.C. Jackson, which takes more pressure off of Justin Herbert to score points so he can relax a little bit more. And I think he, along with the rest of the Chargers, are going to have um, a better season this year and take a big step forward. Yeah, I have Joe Burrow here at number five. He's only 25 and has all the experience in the world after reaching the Super Bowl last season. This is where it got hard for me. Picks one through four. Let's just start with number four before we reveal our top three. Alex, go ahead. Aaron Rodgers. um, He's arguably has the best ball out of any QB ever. Uh, but in my opinion, that's about it. So uh, I got him at four. Uh, for me, I got Joe Shiesty, Joe Burrow at four. Um, Cincinnati addressed their O-line by bringing in Ted Karras, um, Alex Kappa, and Lyle Collins. Burrow was sacked 51 times last year, which was the most in the NFL behind a better O-line. He should perform better. And he and Jamar Chase will be in their second year together, and they should build on that great chemistry they already have. All right, interesting. At number four, I have Patrick Mahomes here. He's one of the best arms in the league, is accurate, sharp, and can make impossible throws, look effortless. I think he will take a step back without Tyreek Hill this season, but still should be an amazing QB. Top three, give all three picks to me, Alex, in order, go. 
these are some insane takes right here, I think. But I got Josh Allen at three, highest passer rating in a single postseason ever. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, that's who you put it for. Patrick Mahomes. That's the top four is very interchangeable. Patrick Mahomes at number four. It's very interchangeable. That's the bottom of the four. There's, there's two veterans and two young guys in the top four for me, and they can go anywhere on this list. Of course, I'm talking about Brady, Rogers, Allen, and Mahomes. They can go anywhere in the top four, in my opinion, but I had to put them somewhere. So I have I got Allen at three, and I think that Allen has the potential to be the best. Tom Brady at two, Patrick Mahomes at one, highest passer rating in league history, has a ring. I don't know how you can't put him at least top two. Well, I didn't. <laughs> this I have him at number three. Um, obviously lost Tyreek, but they brought in other receivers like... Um, Mark Husvel does Scantling, another burner, and Juju Smith-Schuster. So his weapons aren't exactly as dominant as far as names go, but he still has a lot of options. Number two, I have Tom Brady. Last year, led the NFL in passing yards and touchdowns. They added Julio Jones and Russell Gage to pair with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin already. He didn't come out of retirement for nothing. And number one, I have Josh Allen. He's my pick for MVP. Uh, the Bills have been good for quite some time now, and I think this is their year, and I think Josh Allen will be the biggest part of that. Yeah, I have Josh Allen at number three. The only reason I put him ahead of Patrick Mahomes is because I think Allen wins MVP this season as well. I agree with you, Jeff, there. Number two, I put your man, Tom Brady. Absolutely, he's the GOAT of football. He has even more weapons now than ever with Julio Jones, Mike Evans, and Chris Godwin on the Bucks. And number one, I have Aaron Rodgers. I think he's going to do more with less this season. He's coming off back-to-back MVPs, and he's just Aaron Rodgers. He's a great quarterback. He's going to go out there, get the job done for the Packers. Of course, I'm not predicting them to win the Super Bowl, but right now I think he is the best QB in the NFL. So while Jeff is making an enemy out of Dan Groen, hopefully I'm making a friend out of Dan Groen right here. And a quick update before we recap today's show. Around the Rue... Is very interesting. Bernie Kosar is in the lead with 15 votes already. Otto Graham is in second. Other is in third. And Brian Sipe is in fourth. Interesting stuff there. So go vote on our Around the Rue question for the week. All right. Well, that will do it for SBT's last show in July. We talked about combat sports with UFC 277 along with the WWE and Vince McMahon news. We, of course, talked about the MLB and the Guardians with the trade deadline coming up. I know Alex killed that segment and wrapped up by talking about the NFL and QB rankings. Any last thoughts on today's show, gentlemen? Go Astros. Derek Carr, you're a top 10 quarterback. You know you are. Anybody that disagrees is I disagree. not smart. What okay. a terrible final thought. Awful. Go Astros. Is it, is it worse than Derek Carr being top 10? Yes, because the Astros are they're not terrible. Mm. They're actually a good team, but you know, they're the Astros, so I should cut your mic. I should have just expected it, man. <laughs> For me, USC two seventy seven was great, and I hope everyone enjoyed Alex and I's podcast on the card, as well as our breakdown of the results on today's show. I'm looking forward to more UFC and more combat sports talk here on Sports Power Talk as well. We have AW coming to Ohio this week in Columbus, and I will be in attendance for that, so I'm looking forward to seeing AW live once again. As always, listen, share, and download all of our podcasts on SPT Rewind and SPT Overtime wherever you get your podcasts. And... There simply isn't a better time to follow our Twitter page at WZIP Sports. 
We alluded to something big coming earlier this week, and that huge announcement will take place on Wednesday. Trust me, you won't want to miss it, as it's all about you, the listener, becoming more involved with this very show. All right, joining me for today's show were... Jeff Longville. And Alex Henry. I'm Jake Murren. Sports Power Talk will return next Sunday, same time and place. Until then, be kind, and we'll see you then.